This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 227 with guest Debbie Reber. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. As always, I am so grateful that you are joining me. Today, we have a special guest. I mean, they're all special in their own way, but Debbie Reber is a friend of mine. Debbie holds a very special place in my heart because as you will hear coming up, she has a son that has the exact same diagnosis as my son. And when we first got the diagnosis, gosh, it's been five years, I think. Debbie was the first person that I called and was like, help me. (laughs) I don't know which way is up right now. And then also, I know Debbie from the world of writing and publishing. We're here to talk about her book. It's probably like her eighth book or something crazy like that. She's been traditionally published with, you know, big publishers like Penguin and Simon & Schuster. And I hired her when I wrote my first book, when I wrote my first proposal to help me with that proposal. So anybody, if you are out there and you are looking for a writing coach, please check Debbie out. She's amazing. We're not talking about writing that specifically today. We're talking about her new book, which I'm so excited about. I read it. It's great. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. I do have a couple of announcements. Tomorrow, Thursday at noon Eastern time, How about if you join me on Facebook Live or Instagram Live? I'm going to be, well, if technology is um, on our side, I don't think Mercury is in retrograde or anything like that. I am going to, at the same time, be on Facebook Live and Instagram Live. You can join me at the handle Your Kick-Ass Life on both of those social media platforms. Noon Eastern time, that is 9 Pacific. I'm going to be talking about complaining and... Pretty much that's all I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Uh, These videos are about 10 minutes long. I used to do these Facebook videos every week for a while, and then I kind of got burnt out on it. But anyway, I'm back. I am excited about it. If you miss it and want to listen to the replay, you can go and do that over on Facebook because Instagram is weird and they only let it stick around for, I think, 24 hours. And it'll also be over on YouTube as well. Same handle, Your Kick-Ass Life. And the retreats, the Daring Way retreats that I've been going on and on about over the last few weeks, they are both sold out. I opened up a second one in September. That one is sold out as well. But here's the thing, you guys. Go over to yourkickasslife.com slash retreat and sign up for the wait list slash interest list. So what this is, is if there is uh, somebody can't come and we have an opening, I will email those people on that list and say, hey, there's an opening. Do you want to come? And then in the spring of 2019, when I open doors for another retreat, you will be the first to know. These Both of these retreats sold out really fast, way faster than, than we were imagining. And I have no doubt that the one in the spring is, will as well. I actually have three people who've already put deposits down because they're like, I want to make sure that I get in. So if you want to be on uh, that interest list or wait list, it does not obligate you to come. It's just, you're just going to be notified. Yourkickasslife.com slash retreat. 
And that's all I got to say about that. So let me switch gears here and tell you a little bit about Debbie. (laughs) Debbie Reber is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, top podcast, and social media company for parents who are raising differently wired children. Her next book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, comes out in spring 2018. She currently lives with her son and husband in the Netherlands. And without further ado... Here is Debbie. Hello, Debbie. Hi, Andrea. I am so excited to have you, partly because you are an actual personal friend of mine, and I just adore you as a person and admire your work so much. So thank you, thank you, thank you for writing this book and taking the time to to come and join us today. Oh, thank you. I, I love your podcast, and I am so excited to be a guest on it, and yes, I I feel the same about you. (laughs) Well, I was telling people a little bit about you before we started chatting and a little bit about this book. And I want to, I want to start there. And because I, I think, I don't think I'm making this up, but I kind of remember you and I having a conversation because you've had a career in, in writing YA books and, and, you know, you know, different kind of genre. And I thought I remember you saying years ago that you weren't ready to tell the story more specifically about Asher and just, being a parent of a differently wired child, you weren't ready to tell it publicly. So what brought you to write the book? You know, when we we moved here to the Netherlands, um, to Amsterdam in 2013, and something in me shifted during that time. I think, you know, that's the point where we made the decision to homeschool Asher, to pull him out of school. We took this big leap of faith and completely changing our lifestyle and our environment, you know, to moving to another country. And it just felt like it was time to, to let go of the old Mm -hmm. and including, you know, this path I had been, you know, down for many years, as you said, doing YA work and teen advocacy work, which I still feel passionate about. But it just felt like this is time I'm in this transition, I'm going to be doing all this work on myself. And I want to share that, that journey with other people. And it, I don't know, something just clicked. It felt like it it was time. And I didn't make the decision right away. We had been here maybe a year and I started, um, you know, just really discovering more about how to support Asher and also doing a buttload of work on myself. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was, I was ready. I I just knew it was time. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the reasons I love this book and and whom I'm recommending it to is because I felt like and you you remember I mean you were one of the only people when we got the diagnosis about our about our son I think he was five so that would have been in 2012 uh, yeah it was I think it was right before you moved well I can't speak for my husband but I felt like <laughs> I felt obviously overwhelmed with everything because and this is something I want to talk about later because I just kind of feel like we get thrown into what's next, you know, and resources and here's what you need to do, to do, to do. And I felt like there was a lack of, there were so many websites to go to, but there was a lack of kind of concrete mentorship and just, I wanted something like compact, like someone give me the mm-hmm. right book. <laughs> yeah. We all want that book. <laughs> yeah. we Yeah, we do. And, and that's, that's who I think that this is for, for just, you know, obviously anyone who is whether you are in the middle of raising your exceptional child or you are just starting out and Okay, I want to dive into some of my favorite parts of this book. And uh, a couple of the covers or their topics that you cover are directly parallel to 
topics that I covered in my last book, like getting out of isolation. And let's just start there. Because I'm going to get like too excited and be like, and then talk about this, and then talk about this, tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just start there. So first of all, why do you think that it happens that we tend to isolate when we are faced with this um, situation of of having an exceptional child? Well, I think, you know, we start looking around us and, and suddenly our experience is starting to not be mirrored in any of our, you know, peer relationships. And everyone, I, I describe it in the book as kind of like a club, like there's like the cool club and that's the club we all want to be in, the club where, you know, the guidebook is pretty um, straightforward and, and kind of everything is open. We go to the birthday parties and we, you know, mm-hmm. everything kind of progresses in the way that we choose essentially and when we start realizing that wait a minute we we don't have all these options available to us it's it's it it can create a division you know even subconsciously it creates a division and i don't think parents of typical kids intend to do this but we suddenly kind of get kicked out of the club yeah. and i think that there's there's embarrassment there, you know, there's certainly a lot of stigma surrounding so many neuro differences that our kids may or may not be diagnosed with, but or and so we feel very kind of protected. It's like we we just want to withdraw just into our little safe place, mm-hmm. and because we're not sure how other people are going to respond, and so we are, you know, we don't want our kids to be not invited to things or not participate mm-hmm. and you know, suddenly we get, uh, we, we kind of get, uh, we kind of just go in within our families because we're very concerned about how other people are going to respond to us. And we want to stay secretive because that target on our kids back, or just, there is just so many ideas about what these different neurodiversities mean about who our kids are. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the, I had forgotten about this until you started talking about it and that feeling like everybody else's kids that are, especially when it's the same age group as your child, they all fit into the box of mm-hmm. how they're supposed to act and, you know, their milestones and things like that. And then I remember when my son was probably three or four and I remember taking him to the park one day and the park was empty. And I remember being so – feeling so relieved that the mm-hmm. park was empty. And mm-hmm. normally I think like <laughs> – Parents of like neurotypical kids would probably be a little bit happier when there were other children there for their child to play with. And I remember thinking that's probably a red flag. This was before he was diagnosed that 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 was might be a red flag that something might be wrong because I had witnessed him over and over again when there were other children there, it not going well with him trying to interact with them and and it just sometimes was a mild disaster. And so mm-hmm. yes, we can isolate. And then I think for some people their families might not even be a safe place. Oh, absolutely. I hear from people all the time that, you know, especially over the holidays or things where there's expectations of a lot of family time and a lot of people just don't get it or they think that we're being too lenient as parents or, you know, because a lot of the ways that these kids respond to the world around them is by doing things that on the outside may look inappropriate, you know, inappropriate behavior. And uh, yeah, so sometimes it just becomes easier rather than wanting to explain or defend our parenting decisions. We just kind of close ranks and hang out with people, that small group of people who gets us. And that may only be our partner in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. I know you talk about like the cost of isolation, what that's doing. And can you give people 
and just a tip, one tip on how to get out of isolation. Yeah, I mean, there luckily, you know, Facebook is such a great resource mm-hmm. for that. And there are so many, you know, safe communities online and maybe even too many. So it's important to find the community that feels like a match for you. Like I can't be in groups where people are just venting because for me, that's not helpful, but it's really helpful for other people. You know, if they have just been through hell, um, you know, and had a, a terrible day and they need to unload that and get the props from other people or their support. Like I've been there, hang in there, you know, that can make a huge difference. So that's just even one simple way is to find your tribe, in a forum or in a Facebook group and make sure that you're at least connecting with other parents who know exactly what you're going through. Yeah. What about, what about letting go of what others think? Because you kind of mentioned that when you were talking about isolation a little bit, and this one is, this one is so hard. I think, especially when I think we've come a a little bit, (laughs) I wouldn't say we've come a long way, but I, in terms of, so for instance, if I'm at Target and I see a kid acting out or being loud or throwing a fit and putting his hands over his ears. I think we as parents of um of of these kids that have these uh you know neuro- non-neurotypical I don't know what what is the appropriate word nowadays like what are people saying? You can just say atypical, atypical. neurologically atypical okay. or or differently wired. Differently wired. Okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so being a parent, you know, I we I tend to be able to spot it and mm-hmm. I know now, I mean I can spot it from a mile away. I think it, yeah. and I yeah. I have so much compassion for them. And I think that I wish that we lived in a world where that was the norm, and I, I don't think it so much is. But for the people who are going through those times where they are so worried about what people think, what is something that you can share with the listeners? And this is, you know, for any parent, really, because I think even if you have a neurotypical child, they can tend to act out and um, go against social norms. <laughs> Absolutely. How do, we, how do we let go of that? And I will just say that this is a huge one for me. I'm getting so much better at it and actually living in the Netherlands, which is a very, it's a lovely place, but it is a culture where it's not cool to, to be different than kind of average. And so I'm really sensitive to looks that I get and Mm -hmm. um, when things are going wrong in public. Um, I think, you know, two things that I would just say, one is to really just start to recognize where you're getting, uh, you know, when you're being triggered, because we bring then so much negative emotional energy to a situation that can make the experience so much worse for our kids and for all of us. And so I think it's really important to you know, recognize what are the situations where uh, things might happen and then to proactively plan. For me, you know, so much of it is that deer in headlights thing and being caught off guard. That's when I care the most. But if I have a plan for, you know, I know this is the kind of situation where this could go wrong. Here's how I'm going to handle it. You know, then I can just stick to my plan and I don't have to you know, react. And it's in the reactions that, um, that we tend to make choices that might be throwing our kids under the bus or prioritizing some stranger's comfort over Mm -hmm. our own child, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I used to do a lot. And, you know, it's, it's something we have to practice and work on. For me, this has always been one of my biggest 
one of my biggest things because I, you know, I want people to think I'm a rocking parent and I, you know, like yeah. I'm doing a great job here. And, and so that judge, that judgment from others is really difficult to, to truly let go of. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that this is like one big trigger for for probably everyone listening and whether it's, you know, letting go of what other people think of you as a parent or as just a human being or as a woman, it's it's I think it's a lifelong journey that we're all on. <laughs> but I I love that you that you have that you plan for things ahead of time. I mean, I'm all for controlling what which you can control. So yeah, I love that. One of the, there were so many favorite parts of this book, but one of my favorite parts is when you talk about, uh, it, the subtitle is let yourself mourn. And it starts on, on page 118. I'm just going to read, I'm going to read part of this. Um, it says, even the most pragmatic of us likely have a vision of what our child's life will look like. Soccer tournaments, piano or dance recitals, debate team, family volunteer vacations, honor roll, homecoming dances. I've no doubt all parents do this, and my hunch is that a majority realize at some point that things are actually going to look quite different from what they thought. Then you go on to say, some might, some might say mourn is too strong a word when referring to letting go of this vision, but I think it fits. I went through this so much and was so disappointed that I felt like people did not create any space for this. And Mm. I wrote a blog post about it a long time ago. I think it was called like dealing with grief or something like that. And in the, the, the couple of people that I decided I could trust to share it with, um, said things like, Oh, but he's still the same child. You shouldn't feel that badly about it. And and mm. and I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Pretty much. And I love that you you said that in there because it's it's complicated. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, and you know, you're exactly right. I think this is something every parent goes through. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, you can have a neurotypical child who's on honor roll and who goes to prom and all of these things. And they still might end up, you know, on the streets. Like we, we don't have any guarantees Mm -hmm. and nobody does. And I recognize that. And, but I feel like for parents raising differently wired kids, we have a lot less guarantees, right? So, and we are reminded constantly Mm -hmm. of where our child is not you know, conforming to, you know, these traditional rites of passage and what a childhood should look like. And I come up against it constantly. It's, it's another biggie for me, you know, having, you know, now a 13 year old son and just seeing what his social life is like compared to what I know a lot of 13, 14 year old kids are like, it's, it keeps me up at night. And so, so much of this is for me, like I have to, I have to honor that feeling that I have when it comes up and be kind to it, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with recognizing that, you know, it is a loss. It's a loss of a vision that we had. And again, I think all parents experience it, but if we don't give ourselves the permission to experience that, then it's going to fester. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to stay in us. It's going to result in us putting, you know, ridiculous expectations on our kids, it's going to result in us being seriously triggered every time graduation time comes around. And we have to look at Facebook and all these pictures of Mm -hmm. who's going off to this university or who, you know, 
won this sports award or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think it's important to give yourself the time and tell people to, you know, <laughs> to fuck off. To politely move yeah. along. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to see here. Yeah. yeah. I just would nod. And I mean, I got met with all kinds of stuff. Like when, when we first got his diagnosis, I, I remember I shared it with one girl who was more of an acquaintance, not really a friend. And she said, oh, well, at least he's verbal. <sighs> and I was like, yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, yeah, I got met with that a lot. And um, yeah, but I, I think, yes, yes to everything you said. And just, I remember, I mean, still sometimes I still sometimes go to the playground and I'm always really concerned with how he socially, because that, that's been one of our greatest challenges is him socializing and social cues and understanding and interacting with other children his age and and he's always interacted really well with children that are a lot younger than him or a lot older than him. It's his like his own peer group that he's always seemed to have the most trouble with. And mm-hmm. for a long time, he would he would play near the group of children and and sometimes even be playing the same thing they're playing, but with no interaction with any other children. So in his mind, he is playing with them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd have to like ask the teachers when I would ask them like what's going on. I'm like, but are you watching? Like, is he actually in the group? Like, so I would have to go and watch. And I remember like that feeling in the pit of my stomach, like watching him. And then I would see the looks that the other kids would give him. And it's like, I just want to crawl out of my skin. Yeah. And, and he might not even notice. A lot of times he wouldn't yeah. notice. It was me that was feeling all the, ugh, all the feelings. That's- that's what I was going to ask you. Like, how was he in that? I mean, it's the same. This, this is bringing up our own stuff, right? It's our yes. own, all of our own baggage. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's hard. It's really, it takes a lot of processing. And again, for me, it's just, it's a daily, it's a daily thing that I have to have to talk to myself about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every <laughs> yeah. day when, when I pick him up from school, I, I, because, and I have, I have also a neurotypical child who's eight. And so she is, she fits into the box of, you know, of everything quote unquote normal. And I never worry about her with stuff like that. And then of course I have feelings of guilt there too. It's again, complicated, but immediately when they get into the car, I I specifically want to know how his day went because I, I oftentimes never know what I'm going to get. And Mm. it's been, I mean, parenting, whoo. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, I say, I, and again, this isn't a competition. Mm-hmm. And I know parenting is, you know, it's hard for everyone because no matter what we're expecting, we don't get it, whether right. our kid's atypical or not. But the analogy I use in the book is that we're kind of like the wingsuit flyers of parenting. It's just a little bit more of an extreme sport when you're raising a kid who doesn't fit in. That's a great analogy. <laughs> which brings me to great segue into expectations. You write about this in the book, which which I love. So let's talk about expectations. So that we, um, you know, we have expectations of our child, and then we have expectations of ourselves as parents. So can you say more about that? <laughs> yes, I can, Andrea. As a matter um, of fact, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is one, you know, I was going to say, I really struggled with this one. It probably sounds like these were all things I really struggled with, which I did. So with that, you know, I think, of course, again, same with all parents, we are so hard on ourselves as much as other people judge and things like that. I think we all beat ourselves up because, you know, if we're not patient enough or calm enough or, you know, what, whatever enough we think we need to be. And 
this, you know, I think this one's particularly has been tricky for me and for so many parents with atypical kids because our kids can trigger us in a, such a more intense way. And, you know, we, we read all the right books and we feel like we're doing all the right things. And then we have this kid that is um, still coming up against us in a way that we don't expect. And so we feel constantly like we're failing. And that is um, something we have to just give ourselves a lot of leeway to screw up and to give ourselves permission to start over the next day with a clean slate and, and not judge ourselves for, you know, not being as evolved or Zen about our motherhood journey as we think we should be. Yeah, I actually have a, a story that I've, I've told a couple of times here on the podcast about a particular day that, and any anyone who parents a, a, an exceptional child has probably been to either a meeting at the, some kind of meeting at the school, whether it's an IEP meeting or a 504, that's what they call it here in the States, or something like that. And I probably 95% of the time when I walk away from those meetings have felt like somebody punched me in the face. It just, let's have a meeting to tell you all of the things that are wrong with your child. Like, who wants to go to that meeting? Like, mm. nobody. And you have them several times a year. And so there was one particular really hard meeting that I had gone to. And I think it was one of the first ones that I I foolishly told my husband, I'm like, you don't have to take off work for it. I'll just handle it. And then after that one, I was like, I need you to be at every single meeting just for moral <laughs> support more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just so we can walk away together and I could cry on your shoulder. But it was a particularly hard one. I was by myself in the car and I went down the whole rabbit hole of not being a good enough parent. I even was beating myself up for not doing any of the autism walks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but Bye, I did How stop myself you? because yeah. I realized what was happening. And I was like, all right, I am doing the best that I can. I you know, I felt like I wasn't advocating enough for him. And I'm like, okay, felt, felt the feelings of it's all fear. It's all fear based. And then walked into, okay, what can I do? What can I do today? What can Mm -hmm. one thing Mm -hmm. at a time? Yeah. I mean, when I was really grappling with this was our first year of living here and I was, you know, in a new environment and homeschooling a child who at the time was pretty pissed that we had moved here in the first place. So he was not, let's say a compliant student. And it was really, it was one of the darkest periods of my life. And I was working with a parent coach at the time. And one of the things that I kept saying was, I feel like I should, you know, I, I, I want to be this like uber Zen mama, who's like super evolved, like Elizabeth Gilbert, like I should be able to do this because Mm -hmm. I've read all the books. You know, I'm a certified life coach. I know all this stuff. Why can't I just be in this state of, you know, um, peace? And, and, and that was worse, you know, my, my beating myself up about that was worse than what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And I had to, I had to just drop all of that, you know, and, things got better when I did, not surprisingly. It's amazing how we make up stories about how, I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert doesn't even have children. (laughs) But I imagined if she did, she'd be moving through this beautifully. Yeah. (laughs) A lot better than me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about creating space where your child can feel secure. Because I know for a lot of atypical children, they, they walk around feeling like the world isn't safe, you know, just whether it's sensory stuff or that the world wasn't created for people like them. So can you, can you tell us like, what would that look like? Or give us an example. 
Yeah, I mean, there's two kind of different ways. There's actually creating a physical space, right? And making sure that they have a place at home where they can retreat and be with their cozy things if they have sensory issues and listen to music that makes them happy or whatever. But more than that, it is, it's creating a world where they can not be in defense mode. Uh, you know, and I'm using a word that Danny Rady, who founded Asperger Experts, uses um, talking about getting out of defense mode because so many differently wired kids spend a lot of their time feeling anxious or like they're in fight or flight mode. And it's so critical that they can feel safe and they can let that guard down when they're at home. And that means, you know, not putting pressure on them about stuff. It means being endlessly patient with them, you know, and really just kind of dropping expectations and just fully loving them for who they are, where they are at any given time. And unless we can get to that space and they can feel really secure, they're really going to have a hard time internalizing the developmental lessons are, you know, just doing that growth that they need to do that emotional awareness and the maturity and all of those things that we want to see them happen. That's impossible to do mm-hmm. if they're, if they're feeling defensive because they just shut down completely. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it really is making sure that they know we have their backs no matter what, you know, whether we're in public or we're at home and that they feel safe to come to us with anything. They feel safe to, be who they are, um, and that we're going to love them anyway and help them through that. That's so huge. And that was that was really interesting for me to, to really figure that out because I think that I, in my experience has been like when I'm, when I'm getting resistance from my atypical child or pushback or a fit even, I want to push back harder. Like, here's the solution. I'm bigger than you are and louder. And no, this is how it's going to be. What I have found has been helpful is understanding that what you were saying is that that feeling of of feeling being unsafe, whether it's going out of the our normal schedule, which is a trigger for him. He's gotten better, but it is still a trigger. And some days, you know, again, there's no really rhyme or reason. <laughs> Sometimes it mm-hmm. kind of hits, hits us out of nowhere or sensory issues. I now know what is such a better go-to. And it doesn't work every single time, but it works most of the time is when we're having some kind of conflict is that I ask him if he needs a hug. And mm. most of the time that diffuses the situation. And I don't know if it's, I don't really care what the answer is, but I don't know if it's because he feels safer just because I'm, I'm holding him or if it's the pressure or if it's, if it's something else, but it tends to work for us. And it allows me to slow down too, instead of constantly being in solution mode or being angry because mm-hmm. that can happen, you know as a new parent and <laughs> can get impatient. Really? Oh, <laughs> Can't yeah. you just figure it out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I just interviewed someone for my podcast. He's an educator. His name is Zach Morris. And he, it's the second time I've had him on. He, he runs a school in Missoula, Montana, that's focused on nonviolent communication and whole person learning. He's incredible. But we had this amazing conversation about how, how much time it can take and how patient we need to be to help a child feel secure enough to what he calls transform their worldview, right? Or make the changes that we want to see them happen. And even in talking with him, I noticed how, you know, I'm always, I'm coaching my kid constantly because I have all these great tools and I want to share them with him. And, and, 
Zach helped me like reframe my own thinking. And I'm starting to use the question, would you be willing to try X? Would you be willing to, as opposed to let's do this? Or what do you think about this? You know, I'm trying to not solve things for him and let him feel like he's in control. And I'm there with ideas when he's ready so that he can feel ownership of it. And and not feel like, you know, he's just being yeah barraged with all yeah. these things that are really my, my goals, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having an agenda is what, yeah. what we call that in, in the coaching world. And yeah. I think as parents, it's easy to fall into that. Like, I know what's best. This is going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I actually do that with both of my kids, not just, not just my son, but I do it. I do it to my, to my daughter as well. And, and trust me, there are times where, I don't really want to give her a hug when she's just been pissing me off to no end. (laughs) And I'm about to close the door in her room and I ask her, and again, like 99% of the time she says yes, that she wants one. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it can be really, really helpful. I want to ask you one more question before we close. And that is, what do you see is in store for the future of, for differently wired kids as they, as they grow up? Because we are seeing such an uptick in the stats, you know, and, and whatever reason mm-hmm. that is, that's, that's not really, you know, what, what I want to get into, but, you know, as we're seeing so many more resources for them and it being more accepted, I'm using like mm-hmm. quotes yeah. over here. What do you, what do yeah. you see is in store for, for their future as, as what yeah. maybe like what was different for like our generation? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, just to answer that first part, I think that, you know, certainly when I was in, you know, in school, in middle school, high school, there was very little awareness of, you know, differently wired ways of being, you know, anything from dyslexia or learning differences, you know, they're just, it just wasn't recognized. And, you know, kids were kind of slotted, you know, in this, you know, direction and, and, and I, their potential was really not lived up to in many cases, or they had a big fight ahead of them. But, you know, I mean, my hope is, and, and what I see happening and, and certainly the revolution that I, I, I'm hoping that Tilt Parenting is a part of doing is that the world is recognizing more and more the gifts that come with neurodiverse ways of being, you know, whether you are dyslexia, have dyslexia or dysgraphia. And so you can flip images in your head or, you know, I think engineers are realizing, well, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to do, have that spatial relationship, you know, visual spatial relationship talent, or um, certainly, you know, we're seeing more and more businesses that are open to or wanting to hire people who are on the autism spectrum because of some of their attention to detail or user experience or some of the technical expertise that they could bring to it. And so, you know, I see that happening in a, you know, especially as the way people like Elon Musk and some other really high profile people who are embracing different ways of being as well. I feel like the world's going to open up. I mean, that that's my greatest hope that we have, uh, these kids are going to be able to be supported the, that they're going to be on the forefront of, of shaping the future because of the unique gifts they come in with. That is my, my greatest hope. That's what I'm, I'm pushing for. And I really, mm-hmm. I really hope to see some changes in education, you know, high school, middle school, high school, and even higher learning um, so that these kids can, can be accommodated and learn the way that they best learn so that they can really use all those gifts. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful for that too. I, I really am too. And and the book is Differently Wired, Everyone Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. Debbie, anything more that you want to say before we conclude here? 
No, I mean, I just love talking about this stuff and so grateful for this conversation. And I would say, you know, whether, whether you're raising a typical child or a neurotypical child, we are both kind of contributing to this paradigm that's keeping kids stuck. But if you're raising a neurotypical kid, and this is kind of outside, you know, your personal experience, just recognize that your kids are going to school with these children. And you can help your kids understand what it means to be neurodiverse. You can help your kids be allies for differently wired children. You can keep your eye on inclusion things happening at your school and, and play a role in pushing those agendas forward. And then parents with differently wired kids, we also are contributing to this paradigm. And I'd say the more we can use our voice and speak out and be transparent about what's happening in our families and push for what we need, that's going to have to force changes to happen. Yeah. Thank you so, so, so much for being here, everybody. There is a link, special link in the show notes over to Debbie's site about the book. And then also please go over and listen to her podcast, Tilt Parenting. Thank you so much for being here every week. I am so grateful that you choose to spend your time with me and my guests. And until next time, everybody, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 